I feel grounded. I feel powerful. But I also feel light and open. And like, honestly, I just like feel like a channel of connection. To me, stories live in my memory and my heart and then where I am in my life now that gives me like the filter to like bring those out. But I think that can get triggered by a bunch of things. So photographs, objects, whether they're my own personal possessions or others, a a current experience that I'm going, life experience that I'm going through that maybe I don't have a beginning, middle, and end for, but it helps me see other beginning, middles, and ends that maybe I couldn't identify from past life experiences. Sometimes just like extemporaneous talking, like off-the-cuff verbal blahs. (laughs) That's how it can take shape. Even in hearing other people's stories, my like little, I always think of it as like the Amtrak, like the old train Penn Station in New York and Philadelphia, like the old tick, 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 tick when the trains were all like updating. That's what it feels like in my brain of memories. I'll be deeply listening to someone else, but they'll say like one specific detail and I hear that like tick, 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 like thing. And it's like trying to grab onto the thing that I then want to think about or share. I can pay attention, but I'm also just like creatively inspired. So I think hearing other people's stories really generates stories for me. I am Hillary Ray. I am in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And I would say the materials that I work with are my memory, my voice, and my heart, and all of that outputs as stories from my life that come out in many different shapes or forms from those materials. Welcome to Material Feels, where we talk to creative folks about the materials they have fallen in love with. Each episode focuses on a particular material and maker. Often we focus on tangible materials like clay, wood, wool, pigment, paper, or glass. And sometimes we go a little conceptual, covering sound, time, and, right now, the materials used in storytelling. I'm your host, Katherine Monahan. I've got a background in art, and I live in Oakland, California. I created this show because I believe creativity is a human right, and that creative practices and material knowledge should be accessible and inviting. The guests on Material Feels are small business owners, risk takers, independent thinkers, and material lovers. I focus on the voices of queer, trans folk, women, and or people of color. Material Feels is sponsored by Brown Sugar Botanicals. Brown Sugar Botanicals is Oakland's black, queer, and trans-founded CBD company, proudly crafting herbal CBD-infused products with herbal ingredients grown by resilient communities. Great news! Brown Sugar Botanicals online shop has reopened with a brand new respiratory relief salve, as well as our classic pain relief salve, both for just $15. We've also restocked our popular 100 milligram CBD tincture infused with lavender and lemon balm for just $45. And of course, our starter pack bundle if you want to try it all at a discount. Go to brownsugarbotanicals.com shop to order yours. And use code BSBPRIDE until June 30th for 10% off an order of $45 or more. 
That's BSB Pride, all one word. Happy Pride, y'all. This episode was recorded on Ohlone land, my side of the conversation, and the unceded land of the Lenape people, Hillary's side. For those of you listening in the Bay Area, please remember to pay Shumi, the land tax, to the Sudgora Te Land Trust. Wherever you are listening from, if you are not an Indigenous person, learn the names of the lands you occupy and contribute to Native-led organizations and businesses in your area. Each episode of the show is accompanied by an original piece of music created by associate producer Elizabeth Solis. At the end of this episode, we'll be playing the song they created based on last month's show on Pigment with Alexis Joseph at Case for Making. I actually didn't say, and now I can only say it in like a funny voice, like I'm a storyteller. I didn't claim that title really until I actually could feel comfortable saying I'm an artist, which I always had trouble claiming, even though I've been making art in some way, shape or form since a kid. But I actually did an artist residency in 2011 at a place called Elsewhere in Greensboro, North Carolina. Before Hillary tells us about her experience at this artist residency, if you haven't gone back and listened to previous episodes of Material Feels, we did an entire show on time as a material in the context of artist residencies, featuring collaborators Alicia Toldi and Carolina Porras of Pinewood Atlas. This would be a great episode to go back and listen to before continuing. Alicia and Carolina have created a series of guidebooks featuring unconventional residencies across the United States. And they actually have their fourth book that just came out, focusing on the Northeast region. If you're curious about how residencies work, you should definitely check them out on Instagram or at pineywoodatlas.com and buy their books. Also, I'd like to share a residency with you that I've learned about recently, the Black Freedom Fellowship. The Black Freedom Fellowship is a movement that liberates remembrance for vital futures. This artist's incubator creates opportunities for Black and Indigenous artists to breathe deeply and critically assess the realities of our current moment in order to imagine, integrate, and express the truthful needs of what it will take for us to embody our free future now. My good friend Kalima Amalak, artist, herbalist, and co-founder of our sponsor, Brown Sugar Botanicals, will be attending a group residency through the Black Freedom Fellowship in Haiti this August. They will be traveling with 10 other multidisciplinary Black artists. The Black Freedom Fellowship is founded by Isha Rosemond, a queer Haitian-American international organizer, artist, and cultural worker. Hey y'all, this is Isha cultural curator and founder of the Black Freedom Fellowship. I started the Black Freedom Fellowship when I returned to the U.S. after living in IET for two years because Black and Indigenous people deserve to have spaces and practices that remind us that freedom is and has always been our earthright. On August 14, 1791, Haitian liberationists used earth-based practices to organize the spiritual ceremony Wakaima that initiated the Haitian Revolution. 230 years later, this August, a group of 10 artist activists who are leaders in the fields of medicine, social services, visual and performance art, and academia, are returning to this land in order to initiate the personal revolutions necessary for us to live our free future now. We are currently raising $10,500 in order to fund this decolonized cultural exchange program. To the Black Freedom Fellowship, decolonized travel means that 
people are able to travel and engage in rest without financial hardship. It also means that we have committed to paying a minimum wage of $5 per hour to our Haitian staff, whereas the average local professional earns less than a dollar per day. We'll be working with Haitian teaching artists and organizers who are on the front lines of changing Haitian history. Our mutual aid fund is a fund that provides all of these activities and cultural investments free of charge to the participating Black Freedom Fellows. Please donate on Cash App and Venmo at BFF Incubator. BFF I-N-C-U-B-A-T-O-R, or visit our website at www.blackfreedomfellowship.com to donate or shop at our store where 100% of the profits goes directly into the mutual aid fund. Black and Indigenous artists are essential humans, and we are leaning on an essential community of people like you to support our efforts. Thank you to the Material Fields podcast for supporting us and allowing us this opportunity to share our message. So to summarize, listen to the Material Feels episode on artist residencies, contribute to the Black Freedom Fellowship to support the unapologetic freedom and creative expression of Black creators, and consider applying to an artist residency of your own, utilizing the Pineywood Atlas guidebooks. Back to Hillary's formative experience at her first ever artist residency at Elsewhere in Greensboro, North Carolina. It's a living museum in Greensboro, North Carolina, that actually used to be owned. It was a military surplus store that was then taken over by this woman post-World War II to be a thrift shop. And then I believe she just sort of went mad and hoarded and started collecting objects and not selling anything and then cataloging these objects, like in Ziploc bags and all this stuff. And eventually she died in there. And so in the early 2000s, her grandson and his friend from college went there and started to build it into this living museum that then became an artist residency, which I believe to this day they still have artists living in the space. So you're basically living in this museum in the second floor and you can go there and your job is to create some sort of project based on objects in the space. You can't bring any new materials in and you can't take anything out. I was telling funny stories in comedy venues and art galleries and any place that would give me a microphone, essentially. And I knew that they weren't like standard stand-up jokes, but I I knew it had something to do with storytelling. So I applied to do something with, I, I think I used the word storytelling in the application, but I show up there and I'm supposed to make something with materials from the space. And I was like, well, my materials are my memory, <laughs> my voice and my heart. My first night there, one of the artists in residence was leaving and we were all gathered. There were these community dinners every night and we were all gathered around the table. And the guy who was leaving, I said, oh, what was your project? And he gestured to this beautiful table where we were sitting and he said I made this table and I just started freaking out in my head and was like I like what am I going to do I'm not going to make a table I don't know how to make a table like I don't think I'm an artist what am I doing here kind of thing but in that three weeks or four weeks that I lived in this space I called myself an artist I even I gave an artist talk And I claimed myself as a storyteller because what I ended up doing in that space was walking around for, I think, days. (laughs) I didn't keep track of time while I was there, exploring objects in the space, touching them, looking at them, sitting with them, taking pictures of them. And what it did was really shake up my brain and my memories and my heart. And I started to think of all these stories from my life that I wanted to share. And then I actually wrote them all down. 
they gave me a field recorder that I didn't know how to use. And I hit record and I recorded all the stories and actually turned them into digital files that lived on QR codes and the QR codes. I affixed them to the object. So at the time, QR codes were very big and people could scan them and listen to the stories. With a background in theater, Hillary began telling stories on stage over 10 years ago. She started out in comedy clubs and art galleries. Over time, she realized she wasn't really interested in stand-up comedy. Rather than telling a series of jokes, she preferred long-form stories, sharing her experiences, and connecting with an audience of listeners. After her experience at Elsewhere, she created a live storytelling show in Philadelphia that ran for about a decade. And she is also the producer and host of Rashomon, a long-form narrative storytelling podcast where one family tells every side of the same story. She also runs her own business, Tell Me a Story, where she helps mission-driven folks in leadership positions use the art of storytelling as a powerful communication tool. So how does she define a story? I define story now as an experience shared with the beginning, middle, and end. So I think that definition translates across mediums because stories live in, in so many different forms and come out in so many different ways. And so as long as it has a beginning, a middle, and an end, and you're using that structure to share an experience, whether it's a true experience from your life, a fictional world, whatever it is, to me, that story. And stories are everywhere. Embedded in objects, like what Hillary mentioned during her artist residency, the items that we keep on our bookshelves or nightstands. There are the stories we are bombarded by on the train in the form of ads. There are the stories we love to listen to over and over, like our favorite songs. We illustrate stories on our bodies through the art of tattooing. We enjoy the slow unfolding of stories when we exchange letters with a far-off friend. We create wacky, fantastical stories through board games or performance. And then there are the stories we tell ourselves, narratives we've crafted about who we were at different points of our lives. Our personality is a story. Our relationships are stories. What is interesting to me about oral storytelling in particular is the act of standing on a stage in a theatrical environment and choosing to be yourself. Not a character, but still having choice about what you reveal. Being intentional about the story that you share, having delved deep and interrogated each element until it is exactly the story you want to tell. A powerful blend of authenticity and craft. Many of us who work in concert with the material world have a variety of storytelling tools. Maybe it's fiber and you're weaving a tapestry, or wax and you're layering meaning into an encaustic piece. Maybe the materials themselves tell a story, like the origins of a particular pigment. Hillary mentions that her materials are voice, heart, and memory. And the ingredients of a story are simple, a beginning, middle, and end. So what kind of stories is she drawn to telling? All of the stories that I told initially, and this is pre-going to that artist residency, where I think I really found my way and my voice as a storyteller and, like, my art. But prior to that, I think it was, like, a way of me releasing heartbreak and loss and disappointment. I called everything crush comedy because all of the stories that I originally came up with were, like, crushes gone wrong, whether it was like when I was a little kid, through high school, through like things that were in my pretty recent past. And I think it was a way of me working through that or like releasing that in a funny way. But a lot of it were things that 
maybe at the time were not funny to me or devastated me. I did this one story over and over about how every time I knitted someone I either liked or was in a relationship with a scarf, they would immediately break up with me. It's funny because it was a story, but I, I had a scarf on stage. Sometimes I think I was knitting or like finishing a scarf, but I always had this like really long scarf wrapped around my neck and I would bring, I would call someone up from the audience every single time to break up with me on stage. Now I need a volunteer from the audience to break up with me. and she engaged with the audience to transform disappointment and rejection into something humorous and novel. The story is mutable, building on itself, with the essential role of an audience member, helping out. This storytelling tactic reminded me of Theater the Oppressed, a revolutionary type of theater created in the 70s by Augusto Boal. Theater of the Oppressed took off in communities throughout Brazil and beyond as an effective way of organizing and was actually seen as dangerous by the state. It blurs the boundaries between actors and audience, a non-hierarchical tool for problem solving. The audience members are spectators, part spectators, part actors. Each show focuses on a particular social problem or societal struggle that is relevant to the lives of the community. The actors play out the situation once, as it went down in real life. Then they do it a second time. But this time, audience members, or Spect actors can step in and interrupt the cycle with their own actions. A person known as the Joker is a sort of facilitator. Though they don't change anything or control anyone, they simply ask the audience to reflect on the newly created scene. Was it useful? Boal thought that theater could be a means to achieve something greater, a form of social justice where solutions were discovered as a community. Thinking about theater of the oppressed in the context of oral storytelling and sharing our own personal stories, my mind shifts to drama therapy, especially with that role of joker. Drama therapy engages a therapist to help people with the intentional use of theatrical processes to achieve therapeutic goals. Agency is a big theme in drama therapy. Practitioners create a safe space where people can make their own decisions. Movement is also a big part of it getting emotions and thoughts outside of yourself into the physical world. Movement is key to many of the creative practices we've talked about on the show, weaving threads together, pressing and shaping clay, sculpting glass, folding paper. And drama therapy has actually been influenced by avant-garde revolutionary theater thinkers like Boal. Clearly I've gone down on another one of my rabbit holes to learn more about drama therapy, and I discovered a therapeutic tool called role-playing. It's a framework where people are invited to try on different personalities, victim, martyr, etc., and literally practice different frames of mind. I feel there is a connection here. Oral storytelling, and Hillary's specific brand of storytelling, stories that feel true to her, being herself on stage, the process of exploring the story inside and out before choosing how to tell it. I think working with the material world we do this as well. We 
transform materials in the same way a spectator will step on stage, interrupt a story, and imagine a new outcome, introduce a new ingredient. That's what I feel the material world does for my psyche and what my psyche might do for the material world. It feels like a mutual form of magic. So thinking about how a person crafts, communicates, or deeply listens to a story, then learning about the theater of the oppressed and the political power of theater and storytelling, I see the power of stories in a larger context. But then I zoom back in, meditating on the transformative power of storytelling for personal growth through the frameworks within drama therapy. Okay, all right. For those of us not on stage telling stories, how does all of this connect to our everyday life? Choosing what stories we want to share, with whom and where, to me, that means observing our surroundings more, asking ourselves more questions, and getting really specific about what emotions we are feeling. It also means getting more familiar with our preferred materials for communicating our stories. In Hillary's case, memory, heart, and voice. She shares more about how her storytelling practice has changed over time, especially her relationship with her memory. Right now, I'm really drawn to stories from childhood and trying to figure out what is my memory, what is just living in photographs that I'm interpreting, or what are the stories passed down to me about the parts of myself that I can't remember. I really love sitting with something that felt so small or seems so small and insignificant, unfurling it to like illuminate the bigger meaning for me and then for the people listening. There's like an urge to say something or explore something. I get like a flash of a memory. I'm very visual. And then that links me to like an emotion or a time or a piece of my identity, whether it's like how I see myself now or how I think I saw myself. And then this like urge to figure it out. I often like think of my memories or stories like as I'm moving around, like if I'm walking around my house or doing things like that. I'll share it anecdotally in conversation. And then some writing always happens around it. And then I find a way to then give voice to it again after writing. So whether that's behind a microphone in a live setting or in audio form. I make a choice about how I want to share it, and I always make the choice. This is my worldview. This is my perspective. This is what I want to think about in the story. This is the details I want to bring to life or the feelings I want to explore within the story. But then a lot of what makes the story or the experience come to life in that beginning, middle, end is what happens in the moment. What happens when there's a listener or I know that someone's going to listen? And then that's sort of when it morphs and takes new forms. If I tell it again, it might change again, depending on like where I am in life or who I'm speaking to. I think of memories as the presence or the absence of something, the way a handprint leaves a mark on soft clay. Our brain creates a memory of that hand by seeing a visual representation of the pressure it once put on the material. I think about how very specific smells can take me back to a time and place. When Hillary talks about her relationship with her memory, she references childhood photos, ephemera, books that she wrote in grade school, and small moments that she investigates until they blossom into an intricate story. 
But it's not just objects that hold memory. Memory is also a physical material in our brain. It's actual matter. Memory refers to processes that acquire, store, retain, and retrieve information. Our brains have about one billion neurons, and each neuron represents about a thousand connections. That's over a trillion points of connection. Because neurons combine forces to share various memories, our brain storage capacity is estimated at one million gigabytes. Yes, I just put my pinky to my, it's like an awesome power reference. I don't know, whatever. This translates to 300 years of a continuous 24-hour Netflix binge. Indulging in yet another rabbit hole, and to help myself wrap my neurons around these very large numbers, apparently there is only about four years of content currently available on Netflix anyway. What am I supposed to do with my time? I have 296 more years inside of my brain. I just can't, I can't just binge Crazy Ex-Girlfriend again and again, you know, gotta live my life. Anyway, Hillary uses her memory like a Rolodex, one of those rotating spindles people used to have on their desks with names and addresses cataloged in alphabetical order. She mentally scans a library of encoded small moments, sorted and filed in storage. She also responds to her environment organically, allowing certain experiences to call small moments from the past forward. She then uses her heart and voice to explore and develop that memory. Hillary shares a bit more about how she works with others to help strengthen their relationship to their own storytelling materials. I know that I have a way of helping people tell their stories based on the casual workshops I've led or the way I've helped people with their story for these shows. Like, what can I turn this into? And so over time, I like built it and was like doing it part time and like took a business plan writing class and went into doing all these corporate trainings. And then I was like, I'm an anti-capitalist. I can't do this kind of thing. And so now who I work with are mostly folks that run their own businesses. I often work with folks that are like going through some sort of big transition, whether it's a life transition personally or professionally. And that group of folks really work on their stories for themselves. Yes, they have to give voice to them and share them out loud, but they're doing it for personal development, and it's to help shift what stories are happening for them inside and, like, kind of rewire their memory bank to, like, really embrace the stories they would tell to other people. With the entrepreneurs and the leaders, it's really, like, finding a core story that serves you where you are in your life now, and again, not just professionally, that you can share in a professional setting, and then you have all these other stories that can spin off of it. And so when you are taking up more space or expanding your visibility and you want to be the one in control of your narrative, you have the stories to tell. The type of storytelling work that I do that I've shared and on stage with myself and that I help other people do is really linked to identity. The way that I see storytelling linked to identity is that there are three prongs of identity stories. It's the stories we tell ourselves, the stories other people tell about us, and the stories we choose to tell other people about ourselves. Culturally, yeah, just the way of the world, like we're really used to clinging on to the stories we tell ourselves and the stories other people tell about us to inform our identity and how we show up in the world and how much space we take up and whether or not we open our mouth. I think of it as this internal power source to really use the materials of memory, voice, heart to deliver the story of ourself that we want to share with other people. You can reframe the narrative of what's happening inside the internal dialogue or self-limiting beliefs or fictional stories. 
you can make them more in line with what you choose to tell other people about yourself. And then those other people telling stories about you become more in line with how you want your story told. And you still can't control that. But if you if you focus on that, like, I'm using my voice and my experience and my perspective to share my story, those other people are going to shut up and listen. In thinking my material is voice, not words, words are a part of it, but it's not, it's beyond the words. I think about how malleable my voice actually is. Though when I open my mouth, it feels like only one sound could possibly come out. My voice changes over time. In the morning versus the night, when I'm stressed or anxious or like super on edge and overwhelmed versus when I'm relaxed, chilled out, maybe I just took a bath, I don't know. When I'm feeling amorous or if I'm feeling aggravated. The human voice is so intricate. Accents, dialects, pacing, loudness, tone, emotion, familiarity. When I hear voices that remind me of my relatives in Philly and New York, I feel instantly relaxed and at home, no matter how gruff the content. What is your relationship to voice like? Do you ever find yourself in situations where you might code switch, depending on who you're talking to? Code switching is the practice of adjusting the way you express yourself to mirror others around you. There are a range of reasons for doing this, from getting the locals only discount to trying to fit in or feel safe. The voice is an incredibly powerful material that, just like all the other materials we talk about, can be influenced and shaped by social dynamics of power and oppression. Voice is an essential tool for a lot of artists, musicians, storytellers, and, uh, and, yeah, and also podcasters. I'm using it right now. It is a material I pay very close attention to once a month, the few days before I record narration, and the day of. It only takes me about 30 minutes to record narration for this show, but I spend two days hydrating and one day pretty much avoiding any social contact to spare my voice and my mental energy. I like to rest my voice before recording narration. I drink tea with honey. I like actually hydrate, like my pee is clear for three days. I floss. I don't, I don't know. I think that helps. I won't pick up the phone. And when I warm up to record, I wake up my articulators and I open up my posture. Oop, I just hit something in my studio. The voice is a physical and an emotional material. It is created by a combination of work from the lungs, the vocal folds within the larynx or voice box, and the articulators, tongue, palate, cheeks, lips. Breath from our lungs flows through the larynx, air is made to pass through the slit in our voice box, and the vocal cords vibrate, producing sound. Our throat transforms this sound into speech. When we tighten our vocal cords, vibrations increase. A higher pitch is produced. And, like Hillary said, using our voice in all the ways possible is literally taking up space and flexing every role in the book. Talking, singing, laughing, whispering, crying, screaming, shouting, moaning. That's like every emotion right there. And so, for a storyteller like Hillary, who puts so much of herself in her stories, her stories are her. Her voice is a direct channel of her third material, heart. 
vulnerability is a part of storytelling, but I also think people feel pressure that they have to share everything about themselves. Like it's either don't talk about myself at all or I have to share everything. But there are things that aren't ready to be shared, whether it is deep, serious trauma or just something that you don't have perspective on yet or like feel compelled to think about or explore further. So I really encourage people to find the life experiences that are in that scar phase that then they have this like urgency to get out in some way. And that wound phase experiences or memories can like live on a list or like in your head and you can say like, you know what, I'm going to leave that for now, but maybe I can revisit that at some point. And so that I think creates a lot of boundary both for the storyteller, but also for the audience, because then the audience is receiving stories that are vulnerable and true, but also from this inner strength and power that I think is also saying to the audience, you're going to be okay listening to me, whatever it is I share. I'm not going to burden you with anything that's unhealed. While you were saying that, I started imagining the story again as something, an animate object, like it's a living and breathing and you put part of yourself into it and it might have have those wounds that you're like examining and caring for and getting ready to share and then someone receives it. I almost see it as it feels sculptural to me. I think of all stories as animate objects as well and like constantly shifting and there's somebody there to receive it. Even if the audience is like, oh, no, is this a wound? But obviously, they're not thinking in that form. Like, if the storyteller has that boundary of like, oh, no, this is a scar, then you're taking care of your audience and you're taking care of yourself. Makers often have a studio that they work from, whether it is a room, an area, a designated surface. A specific space lends itself to specific rituals, tools, and your mindset. No matter what material you work with, what your studio looks like, it is how you get to that mindset for your creative practice that I am curious about. I've had so many different studios for storytelling, but I honestly, I think of that museum where I did the artist residency in Greensboro. Like, even if I'm not surrounded by piles of hoarded objects that have been cataloged in Ziploc bags, I see that space as the space of creativity and, like, where all of my core stories, especially when I was, like, actively performing stories on stage, that was the studio where they came from. It doesn't really matter the location. I don't want people crowded around me, but I did spend a lot of time in the New York Public Library, the Rose Room, writing stories at one point in my life and at this weird artist residency. Oh, This is coming to me now. For eight years of my life, I was a standardized patient. So I was an actor for medical students, and that was my day job. And I worked for the National Board of Osteopathic Medical Examiners. And so we were there from 8 a.m. to 3 p.m. And we were not allowed to leave the premises because they, like, fed us and all this stuff. So actually, my studio, for a lot of my storytelling, was a mock doctor's office And I was wearing a hospital gown and white socks. And I would bring, because we weren't allowed to have our computers or our phones or anything with us in the room. So I would bring my Muji notebook and my Muji pen. And I would write stories in a hospital gown, (laughs) underwear on, 
but that's it, and white socks. And I would lie on an exam table that had a pillow and I would like put the notebook on the pillow, open it up. And we had, I think, nine minutes in between the time that we saw medical students taking our exam. And so I would write for nine minutes straight. And sometimes I had to stop, like they'd say like one minute or they'd say like, "Stand, SPs, please take your places. It was, there was like an announcement that came on. And so I would have to put my notebook away, like put it in the drawer and then get back into position to play whatever character I was playing, which I played a suicidal teenager for a while and I had to start every encounter curled in a ball. So I would be writing my story, closing my notebook, and then having to quickly be like, I have to sit in this ball. Or once I had a stomach thing and I had to like lie curled in pain. So it was like this switching in and out of my life, my stories, getting them out on paper. And then like becoming a medical character where I was sort of acting One of the reasons I asked that question is because I like to give people different ideas of where what they need to be creative and where they need to be. And it's usually everyone's answers are just so different or simple. And so I think what you've brought to the to our attention is that if you have your tools and you have your your drive, you can do it anywhere. <laughs> In a hospital gown, in in a completely, I mean, that's such an uncomfortable situation for so many people, and yet you just did it. So I wonder, do you feel like having a limited amount of time and being like, all right, I need to use my time to do my thing, did that help? With that eight years of my life specifically, I think it was because I had this job where I was sort of a robot. I didn't have to do much. Like, yes, I had to pay attention to, like, I had a checklist. I had to score these people, and that was a very high-stakes exam. But I knew how to do that. I knew how to bifurcate my brain to do that and still live in my creative headspace. And that was the reason why I held on to that job for so long before I went full-time with Tell Me a Story as a company is because I could bifurcate my brain successfully and, like, swirl ideas in my head or like think about a story and so I could do that for the eight-hour shift my studio was also just getting up in front of people with a microphone and trying things out and so my studio would be like daytime swirling writing whether that happened there on the megabus to New York or in the Rose Library room but then like getting up in front of people and and seeing and not like asking for feedback of like what did you think but receiving feedback in the form of nonverbal response what's the point of storytelling i get that question a lot and i actually get that from people that i work with or that are scared to, and not what's the point. It's the why would anyone care about my story? I feel like that is like a fear-based response to being visible. What's the point of storytelling? And as I see it, like an experience shared with a beginning, middle, and end, because that's how we understand each other as human beings, whatever shape it takes. It's how we like understand ourselves, each other, what's happened around us. You're literally conjuring things to be shared that would not be shared unless that person opened their mouth and did it. 
Yeah. And then the other what's the point is like because people need to be heard and also people need to become better listeners. And that's the way to do it. Hillary and I have a common thread, a theater background, though hers is much more developed than mine. I was a theater geek in elementary school and middle school. By eight years old, I knew every word of Les Mis. Yes, my ego was bruised when I didn't get into the freshman year musical in high school, but that did not prevent me from continuing to be completely obsessed with Broadway shows, musicals, theatrical fun of any kind, and Frozen 2. I asked Hillary what she misses most about theater over the past year and a half of a pandemic when gathering indoors was not an option. That feeling right before something's about to start. I wrote this story last night that I shared out loud with this writing group that I'm in about the musical Rent and, like, different things in my life that have related to that musical. But I still remember sitting there, and I went by myself in Philadelphia to the tour, and I was clutching the playbill. So it was always like I was holding onto the playbill, which I always wanted to get to the theater early to read before it started so I could read all the bios and see the song list and know if there was an intermission, like all the rules. No matter what the show, I it's not even a choked up, like in my gut and in my throat, I do feel like I could cry, but I always hold on to the tears. But I know that the tears are going to happen at some point, and mostly because of joy. If anything disrupts that, like, probably millisecond, but it feels completely slowed down for me when something's about to start, if somebody, like, sits down late, has their phone glowing, <laughs> unwraps their <laughs> wrapper, I feel rage. <laughs> so I like to hold on to that special moment. I, I can channel that moment if I need to, even if there's distractions around me. So the moment of sitting down right before it starts. So you're imagining being in the audience now. That's my feeling in the audience, and it's sometimes the lights don't go down. So sometimes you don't know, and things just start. But I still get the, like, I need a breath from myself and, like, peace, and then I need to, like, fill up with the emotion <laughs> for the true beginning. I don't like being on stage in theater. I think I did as a kid. Like, I, can, I have really good memories, but I think as soon as I went to school to study singing in theater— going on stage was actually like really traumatic. And so I don't have good feelings equated with standing on a stage as a character. I don't want to be a character. I just want to be myself. And I think honestly, like, I don't feel that way if I'm on a stage, whether it is like a formal theater stage, which I have been telling stories or like a coffee shop. Now that I understand Hillary's relationship to voice and how she uses storytelling as a part of her identity, this makes total sense to me. I ask her to take us with her and show us what it feels like to be in that place where she is fully herself. So welcome to Tell Me a Story. My name is Hillary. I will be your host this evening. 
welcome to Tell Me a Story 2020 edition, which is now when I am on a stage or when I think of positive experiences on a stage, I am in my own clothing. <laughs> There's a microphone in front of me on a mic stand, but I can take it out if I want to. There are enough lights so that I can't really see specific people in an audience in the audience, but I could figure out who was there if I wanted to. I have to breathe, like before I open my mouth. I have a memory of being a kid in theater at a time where I felt so free and open and thrilled that I channel that, even if it's like, again, an image or a split second now before I'm gonna get up in front of people. Hillary then conjures that very specific memory. She takes me all the way back to third grade. We had this multi-purpose room that they used for everything. There were risers. We had music class there. But when there were theater productions, that's where they were. So there was no stage. But everybody that came had to sit on the floor. And so it was like a flat so that you could see what was happening in the part where the play was going on. And so in third or fourth grade... We did Paul Bunyan. That was the musical. And it's like an operetta, a British operetta about an American folktale. It's like very confusing. I don't know why you would give that to third graders. A part of like the casting for like, sure, the teachers, music teacher like chooses based on like the capabilities of the student, but you could write down what you wanted to be. And so I, I knew we were doing Paul Bunyan. I think I asked for the cassettes of it. I don't know if like my parents got it from the library or we bought it, but I remember listening to the cassettes of this operetta and like it came, it was like in one of those big, this is like how old this I will feel. It was like in this like big long box that had all the cassettes in it. And then there was a booklet with the lyrics and like pictures and stuff. And so I was, like, listening, and I didn't like any of the women's songs. And, like, I also knew that I wouldn't get to be Paul Bunyan. There was this one character that came in in Act 1 and Act 2 just one time each act that had a solo, and it was the Western Union Boy. A telegram. telegram. And he, the song is, like, it's about delivering a telegram to Paul Bunyan. And that was it. And it was, like, a comedic relief. It was all the stuff. And so I was like, well, I want this role. I got a solo. I get to deliver this message. And then in my head as a kid and how I remember it is that I wanted to ride a bicycle. I asked my music teacher if I could, well, I like put this down as the role and I got cast because nobody else had done research. I asked if I could ride my bicycle. I got, got got permission to do so, and so that became part of the play. And so the memory that I have and the feeling that I always get now when, like, being on stage feels good for me and when I can channel, like, a good theater experience is, like, on a pink Schwinn with a flower banana seat at the back end of the multipurpose room going down this narrow aisle where, like, all the kids and parents and teachers are sitting on the floor around me, and it's on carpet, and I have to pedal to the tempo of this song and sing. <laughs> and I, like, grew up in a city. I, like, rode a bike in parking lots. Like, I wasn't riding through the streets of Philadelphia as a kid. So, like, I was also, like, new to riding a bike. <laughs> For some reason, the memory I hold on to and the experience I had doing that is, like, joy, freedom, unapologetically being, like, this weird version of myself, even though I was a character and I was, like, the Western Union boy. But, like, I feel 
Like, I created the world for that character and, like, had permission to, like, show up and take up space in this weird way. And so I connect to that anytime I'm now up in front of an audience, like, as small or large, as formal or informal. I tap into that theatrical freedom that I felt. And I wish that I had that memory to tap into when I was experiencing so much fear and pain on stage in front of people, because I think I could have it could have supported me in a really good way. Wow. I I love how specific you got with that memory. And I feel like your relationship to your memory is so intricate and intimate. You think about your memories a lot and that really shows. And you really paint a picture with very specific ingredients. Do you believe everyone can tap into those places and that they don't have to be scary and dark? Or if they're scary and dark and you want to explore them, that's okay. But I do also know the way I hold on to memories is is very specific and also like has got sharpened, I guess, like over time in storytelling being the form in which my materials go out into the world. The bicycle moment that Hillary shares was a small moment in her life. Her relationship with her memory allowed her to access that small moment. And her comfortability with her voice and her heart allowed her to expand that moment so it blossomed into a many-petaled fractal, intricate and specific and fragrant. She accesses that memory with the snap of her fingers before every show. She shares that memory with me with such detail that now it's a part of me, too. Stories are physical beings because they are pieces of information that we internalize and store in our minds. And so if you create a relationship with specific stories in your life, a relationship that is so strong that you feel comfortable sharing those stories with other people and they are open to receiving it, that fractal, intricate flower is now a part of them. Why do you love what you do? It just feels right. And not that, like, other things felt wrong. As a kid, I, I wanted to perform. I, like, have in various places said I wanted to be an actor, a director, a writer. I wanted to, like, express myself in some way. But the path that got me here, it just feels right, even though it was never what I wanted to do. <laughs> I just didn't know what opportunities would be there for me and also what opportunities I could create for myself because honestly, honestly, I've like created all of this for myself, both like my art and like now making a living from like helping people find their stories for whatever thing they need them for. And it just feels right in like a weird, like I'm not even a religious or spiritual person per se, but it feels like the universe did it. I don't know. That feels really weird. When something feels right, what does it feel like in your mind and your body? Are we ready to get the show started? Great. I feel grounded, which feels like my like I can feel my feet hit the earth, but the earth keeps going. I feel at the same time Jumping freedom for me is like singing on the bicycle moment of my life. Then the thing that's like bringing those to the grounded and the jumping 
together is this core of trust. Trust in myself, trust in the materials, the work, the story, and trust that however it comes out, it is going to land and be received. And that's all I can do. I am particularly taken with the vivid sensation Hillary created in my mind, riding a bicycle down the center aisle of the third grade rendition of Paul Bunyan. Singing and pedaling and being fully myself. I've been trying to figure it out. What's my bicycle moment? What moment can I conjure to support myself when I'm about to step off the ledge and free fall into my creative practice, which is so thrilling, but also so unknown? What details would I pull into that story that would not only get across exactly what I mean, exactly what I feel, but also make the experience palpable to the person listening to get their version of a Rolodex spinning? To me, that story that she told is a distilled drop of water, a memory that is both pure and refined. And when it is brought out into the world, it creates a ripple effect. I absorb it and my own memories begin to condensate, pool into droplets that I can collect, examine, and craft into my own water droplet. Every time I interview someone who works with a material and has a studio, we do a demo, some kind of activity. It's an opportunity for them to give me all the delicious sounds that their creative processes make to see their material in action and witness them in relationship with it. Hillary's version of a demo was a storytelling activity that she does with her clients. I'm going to close out with that activity and pick back up next episode to complete it. Kind of like the values conversation at the end of the show with paper artist Zai Devecha. If you listen back on that, you'll see what I mean. It's a way of leaving us with some food for thought, and then we'll come back to it next month. So Hillary is going to lay out the activity for us, and I'm going to complete it for the next show. There is an open invitation for you to participate either now or next month. I'm still pretty amazed by how many people reached out to me to discuss their core values, which was the subject from paper. So I thought, you know, just keep the introspective workbook vibes going uh, if that's something that you enjoy doing. Your materials are pen and paper. And you have five minutes. And in the five minutes, I want you to create your five-word life stories, five words that encapsulate your life up until this very moment. Focus more on the story you choose to tell someone else about you, not the story you're telling yourself, not the story other people are telling about you. It doesn't have to just be adjectives. You can use all kinds of words, action words, places. And a lot of people like word dump and create a bunch of words to choose from or draw a picture Sometimes it just comes to people. Put the date, because this, the whole thing is you can do this over and over again, and it doesn't negate the story that came before it. It's just your five-word life story that serves you in the present moment. Those five words are an invitation for further brainstorming. And I think if you think about your brainstorming, it's like, again, tapping into memory, heart, voice and see what happens but I think trusting yourself enough like oh wow look at what I just did in five minutes with five words what else is out there what else is inside of me material feels is produced by me your host Catherine Monahan 
I'm a writer and audio storyteller with a background in art. Associate producer Elizabeth Delise composes original music for the show as well. This episode features sounds from freesound.org, as well as underscores by MSFX, and music and underscores created just for the show by Elizabeth. The show is a labor of love. Here's how you can support our creative community. Share the show with your friends and family. Overshare it. Just be that person. Talk about it at the dinner table. Post about the show on social media. Follow us on Instagram. Contribute to the Black Freedom Fellowship and help make art residencies more accessible to Black artists. Or contribute financially to local Indigenous-led groups in your area. And now, an original piece of music composed by Elizabeth, inspired by Pigment, and our interview with paintmaker Alexis Joseph. Very in blue, all adorn you, more than you could ever need. Seafoam, sand, coconut cream, love skin curl, but you look so sweet. Mother See 